Let's turn in our Bibles to John 17, John chapter 17. Uh, The title for today's sermon is The Lord's Prayer. Now that might strike you as odd. Uh, John 17, The Lord's Prayer. Uh, Normally, when we speak of the Lord's Prayer, our mind goes to Matthew or Luke where we, uh, where we learn that uh, the Lord taught his disciples to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, and so forth and so on. And we refer to that prayer as the Lord's Prayer. That's somewhat of a misnomer. Um, personally, I think it would be better if we referred to that prayer as the disciples' prayer. Uh, that's a prayer that we pray. Here in John 17, in reality, we have the Lord's prayer, a a prayer which he uttered while on earth and a prayer which he continues to utter before the Father in heaven on behalf of his people. And this is what's going to capture our minds this morning, captivate our hearts, and I trust it will indeed be an encouragement to you. Follow along. As I begin reading in the first verse, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. And you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. 
And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. As you know by now, in chapters 13 through 17, John gives us an account of Christ's private ministry. In the very first verse in chapter 13, he tells us in very plain language that Christ, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so what we have in view in chapters 13 through 17 is a very specific group of people, Christ's own. Or as we read three times in chapter 17, those whom the Father has given to Christ. And it's interesting to note that in chapters 13 through 16, Christ speaks to his own from the Father. But here in chapter 17, he speaks for his own to the Father. And so what we find in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, again, let me repeat it. This is extremely important. In those chapters, the Lord Jesus discloses the mind of the Father. He speaks to his own from God, the Father. But here in chapter 17, we have a completely different picture, completely different emphasis and direction. Here, the Lord Jesus is no longer speaking to his own. He is speaking to his father on their behalf. The Lord's prayer, a prayer which he uttered in his final moments here on earth prior to the crucifixion and a prayer which he continues to offer before the Father to this very day. Philip Melanchthon, a reformer, penned the following, There is no voice, there is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or in earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than this prayer offered up by the Son of God for us. 
We delve into the inner sanctum this morning. The inner sanctum of Christ's high priestly office, whereby he prays before the Father on behalf of his people. I hope my goal, my desire, my prayer this morning is is very simple, uh, very straightforward. Uh, I I pray that we will be encouraged, uh, overwhelmed by the truths in these chapters this morning. Uh, Whatever baggage you bring to the table this morning, and I'm guessing there are one or two of you with baggage, one up here with baggage, whatever struggles, whatever circumstances plague you this day, if you are going to find encouragement anywhere, if you are going to find comfort for your soul anywhere, this is the place. John chapter 17, where we hear our Lord and Savior pray on our behalf. And so I trust we will be encouraged this morning as this, as this banquet, this feast is laid before us, that we will rise up and we will gorge ourselves on the Word of God. And eat and drink to our fill, that our hearts might indeed be warmed, that the Spirit of God will bring to us such clear comprehension as to the abundant riches which are ours in Christ. There's a story told, I didn't write this, it was another preacher, of a man named Yates, probably a name familiar to most of you here this morning. And this preacher, this writer, penned the following In West Texas, there is a famous oil field known as the Yates Pool. During the Depression, this field was a sheep ranch owned by a man, you guessed it, named Yates. Mr. Yates was not able to make enough money on his ranching operation to pay the principal and interest on the mortgage. So he was in danger of losing his ranch. With little money for clothes or food, His family, like many others, had to live on a government subsidy. Day after day, as he grazed his sheep over those rolling West Texas hills, he was no doubt greatly troubled about how he would be able to pay his bills. Then a seismographic crew from an oil company came into the area and told Mr. Yates that there might be oil on his land. They asked permission to drill a wildcat well. And he signed a lease at 1,115 feet. They struck a huge oil reserve, giving 80,000 barrels a day. In fact, 30 years after the discovery, a government test of one of the wells showed that it could still flow 125,000 barrels of oil a day. And Mr. Yates owned it all. The day he first purchased the land, he received the oil and mineral rights, yet he was living on relief, a multimillionaire living in poverty. What was the problem? He did not know the oil was there. He owned it, but he did not possess it. That is like many Christians today who don't realize how rich they are In Christ, we own it, and yet we do not possess it.
I pray that we will rise up and take possession this morning of what Christ offers us in his high priestly prayer and that it will be such an encouragement to us to face the harsh reality of life, whatever that may be. It might stir us on to faithful service and ministry in the name of Christ. The prayer itself, as recorded here in John chapter 17, has a definite, definite structure. It naturally divides into two major sections. In the first section, which consists of the first five verses, Christ prays for himself. Very simple. John 17, verses 1 through 5, Christ begins by praying for himself on his own behalf. Then from verse 6, right through to the end of the chapter, verse 26, he prays for his disciples. He prays, again, it's mentioned at least three times, perhaps four times, he prays on behalf of those whom the Father has given to him. So that's his subject matter. When we pray, we bring certain subjects, motifs before the Lord. Well, this is Christ's subject matter. In the first five verses, he prays for himself. In the rest of the prayer, he intercedes on behalf of those whom the Father has given to him. So we begin with the first portion, the first natural division to the Lord's prayer. He prays for himself. What does he pray for? In these verses, we discover that Christ actually makes two requests. Uh, There are two petitions. And he attaches a reason, so he sets a foundation for each of these requests. So, So think in terms of request and reason, request and reason. Let me give them to you right at the outset, and then we'll go back and explain them a little bit. The first request. Right there in the middle of verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. There is his first request. Father, glorify your Son. But he adds a reason. Why do I want you, Father, to glorify me? The rest of verse 1, that. That's a purpose clause. So that, in order that, the Son may glorify you. So here's what I'm asking for, Father. I'm asking you to glorify me. That's the request. What's the reason? That I, in turn, might glorify you. Now, there's a second request and reason. But in this instance, Christ gives the reason first, prior to the petition. And so we find the reason in verse 4. He states, I glorified you, On earth. Here's what I have done. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. That's the reason. Out of it flows a request. Verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Two requests attached to two reasons. Look at them now in more detail with me. The first request, back to verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Honor your Son. 
What does that mean? Flip back just a few pages, a few pages in your Bibles in John's Gospel account to chapter 12. We were here a couple of months ago, and in John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24, we read the following. And Jesus answered them, that is the disciples, the hour has come. Prior to this point, time and time again, he had emphasized the fact that his hour had not yet come. Now his hour has come. His hour for what? The rest of the verse. For the Son of Man to be glorified. How will he be glorified? By way of the cross. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's a simile whereby the Lord Jesus teaches very simply, look, you have to throw that grain of wheat into the ground. It dies before it can produce the fruit. So too, in order for me to bear fruit, I must die by way of the cross. But understand this, it is humility before glory. It is humiliation before glorification that this crucifixion is actually part of an hour, this time that has been appointed before the foundation of the world, whereby the Father will glorify the Son. That having died at Calvary's cross, having offered himself as a sacrifice for sin, the Father would glorify the Son, raising him from the dead, and seating him at his right hand in glory on high. Father, glorify me. How? I am about to go the way of the cross. And here's what I am praying for. My resurrection, my ascension, and my exaltation to your right hand. Glorify me. Why? That I might glorify you. That by raising me from the dead, in seating me at your right hand, in bestowing such honor, such, such an acquired glory upon me, that I might in turn honor you. That I might in response glorify you. How? Second verse. Since you have given me authority over all flesh. That's his glorification. That Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He was raised with power. He was seated above all rule and authority and power and dominion. That every name would be, would be brought into subjugation to the exalted King, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have given all, me authority over all flesh. Why? That I might do what? The rest of verse 2. To give eternal life to all whom you have given me. Are you following the reasoning? Father, glorify me. My exaltation. And here's why I want you to glorify me. That having given me authority over all flesh, that I might give eternal life to all whom you have given to me. How? Verse 3. And this is eternal life. That they know you. The only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so the Lord Jesus Christ will send forth the Spirit of God. And He will call His people. He will reveal to them God's name. 
He will bring to them the knowledge of God and of himself. He will bring them to salvation. He does this by virtue of the fact that all authority has been given to him, which is given to him by virtue of his exaltation. If Christ is not exalted, he cannot glorify the Father. You see, we have, a, we have a, something lacking at times in our, in our thinking when it comes to the comes to the gospel, and I'll tread carefully here. When we speak of the gospel, and when we think of Christ's work on our behalf, at times we limit it to the cross. Now, please do not misunderstand me. The cross is central. Christ's crucifixion is of paramount importance. But Christian, understand this. The cross is only half of the equation. Christ's crucifixion was only half of his work on our behalf. The other half is his intercession. So just as the high priest in the Old Testament, yes, had to slaughter that animal on behalf of the Israelites, yes, there had to be the spilling of blood, so too he had to take that blood and enter into the most holy place. In a similar fashion, the Lord Jesus, our high priest, Yes, has shed his blood on our behalf. Praise God. It does not end there. He has entered into the presence of the Father, the most holy place, the inner sanctum, where he now intercedes on behalf of all those whom the Father has given to him. He intercedes on behalf of all those on whose behalf he has died. Without this exaltation, there is no salvation. His priestly work consists of these these two tremendous aspects, whereby, yes, he, he glorifies the Father in giving himself as a sacrifice at the cross, but so too he glorifies the Father by entering into his presence, assuming authority over all flesh, and thereby granting eternal life to all those whom the Father has given to him. That's the first request he makes here. And then the second request in verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. with The glory I had with you before the world existed. What's the reason behind this request? We need to go back to the preceding verse. Verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. How did Christ glorify God on earth? He glorified him through all of those signs, marvelous miracles that he performed in the sight of men, changing the water into wine, raising the paralytic, raising Lazarus from the dead. All of these were manifestations of the glory of God. He glorified God by subjecting himself to the Father's will by obeying his Father perfectly, obeying his Father all the way to the cross. Father, I have glorified you on earth. I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. From that reason flows his request. Now, Father, glorify me. This is no longer an acquired glory. In verse 1, it is an acquired glory in view. That is, it is a glory that is a result of what Christ does. Here, this is a glory that is the result or flows from who Christ is. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you 
before the world existed. This is not an acquired honor. This is an essential glory, his eternal glory, a glory that had been veiled by virtue of the incarnation, a glory which had been clouded by his humanity. Well, the work has been accomplished. He is about to die at Calvary's cross. Now, Father, glorify me that my deity might shine forth in its true splendor. That even my glorified humanity might be free of all frailty and weakness. And that my threefold office might now be glorified. Whereby I reign as prophet, priest, and king. Not in humility, but in glory. This is what I ask for, Father. I want an acquired glory. The reward, the fruit of my labors. And I desire, I want that essential glory, which has been beclouded by virtue of the incarnation. That's the first part of the prayer. That's what Christ prays for himself. And then he shifts gears in verse 6, and he begins to pray for his people. Look at the description he gives us of of these people in verses 6 through 10, very quickly. First of all, he describes them. As those who know God's name, verse six, I have manifested your name to the people. And so he's talking about those who know God's name. In other words, those who know God as revealed in Christ. The second description, they're recipients of God's grace. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them To me, that's sovereign grace. Why do I stand here before you this morning as a Christian? Not because of anything in me, but because of the good pleasure of God Almighty. That God, as we enter into the mystery of his eternal decrees before the foundation of the world, as he saw humanity lost in sin by virtue of the fall, called out, elected a people for himself, gave them to the Son that he might redeem them and save them. As pure grace, they are recipients of God's grace. He says, thirdly, that they are those who keep his word. The last phrase in verse six, they have kept your word. He says in reference to the disciples, he says in reference to all those whom God has given to him. Notice in verses seven and eight that they are those who believe in Christ. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. They believe in Christ. And lastly, verses 9 and 10, they glorify Christ. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I and glorified in them. So he is praying for his people. He is praying for those who know God's name. He is praying for those who are recipients of God's grace. He is praying for those who keep God's word. He is praying for those who believe in Christ. He is praying for those who glorify Christ. Very specific group of people in view. What does he ask? Four things. He makes four requests. First of all, he prays, Father, keep them. 
verses 11 through 15. You see, his people have a problem. Verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. What have we learned about the world in chapters 15 and 16? The world hates Christ's followers. The world hates Christ's followers because it hates Christ. The world hates Christ's followers because Christ has chosen them out of the world. The world hates Christ's followers because it does not know the Father. Father, my people have a problem. They are in the world. And he's reminded us right there at the end of chapter 16, in the world you will have tribulation. In the world, you will face hostility. You will face animosity. Father, my people are in a desperate situation. Here is what I pray for on their behalf. Keep them. How is he to keep them? Verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. And the righteous run into it and are safe. The name of God is simply the revelation of who God is. The unchangeable God of glory. Glorious in majesty. Glorious in power and wisdom. Therefore, Father, according to your infinite power and strength and might, keep them, preserve them, protect them. He goes on in verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. Which you have given me, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, in other words, in their audience, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them, verse 14, your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Here's what I ask, but that you keep them from the evil one. And so in the first instance, Father, keep them in your name. That's how I want you to keep them. According to your infinite, boundless power and might and strength. Why? Here's the reason why, Father. I want you to keep them from the evil One, the evil one, the devil himself, he's a snake deceiving God's people, a wolf destroying God's people, a lion seeking to devour God's people. William Grinnell writes, did God's eye wander one moment from you? Did God's eye wander one moment from you? There would need be no other flood to drown you, yea, the whole world, than what would come out of this dragon's mouth. Father, keep them from the evil one. That's his first prayer request for us. We find a second prayer request in verses 16 through 19. Father, sanctify them. He's already reminded us That we are in the world by status. But look at what he says now in verse 16. They are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. We are not part of it. Born again from above. And here's what I desire for them. Verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. 
Your word is truth. And here's the result. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. What is the basis of our sanctification is Christ's consecration. Christ set himself apart at Calvary's cross for the penalty for our sin that we might have new life in him. What is the means of our sanctification? It is the word of God. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. What is the result of our sanctification? Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world to be a shining light reflecting the holiness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's his prayer request, that we might be set apart, that we might be holy, that we might grow in the image and likeness of the Lord Jesus. And then he makes a third request, verses 17 through 23. Father, unite them. Verses 20 through 23. Father, unite them. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, all his people. Here's what I'm asking, that they may be all one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And so, Father, keep them. Father, sanctify them. Father, unite them. Please notice carefully four marks of this unity. First of all, the source of this unity is God. Verse 21, that they may all be one, Just as you, Father. He's praying to the Father. Back in verse 11, I am coming to you, Holy Father. Verse 25, O righteous Father. The Lord Jesus is praying for his Father to unite his people. Very important for us to understand that fact. Why? Simply for the following reason. We don't create this unity. Often people will go to John 17 and talk about us needing to strive to to live in unity and to unite ourselves one with another. It shows a complete misunderstanding of the unity of which Christ speaks in this chapter. This is not something we do. This is not something we produce. This is a unity that comes from the Father. This is a request that the Father Answers in response to his son. The source of this unity is God. Notice, secondly, the object of this unity. It's the regenerate. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Notice, thirdly, the nature of this unity. It is spiritual. Verse 22. The glory that you have given me I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. In what sense are the Father and Son one? They are one in essence and they are one in 
purpose. That is what Christ wants for his people. That by virtue of our baptism through the, by the Spirit into the body of Christ, we become essentially one in Christ. It's the mystical union in Christ. That that union of essence that exists between the Father and the Son might be that same union that unites us in the body of Christ with our risen head, the Lord Jesus, and that flowing from that unity of essence, there might be a unity of purpose. It's a spiritual union. It's not all the denominations getting together and singing Kumbaya. This is a spiritual unity. It is something that exists in reality by virtue of the Spirit of God who dwells in us and makes us one with another, whether or not we, whether we like it or not. We have no choice in the matter. We are one. Because the Spirit unites us together in the body of Christ. That's its nature. It is spiritual. And notice thirdly the purpose of this unity. It is to convict. Verse 23. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Again, Christian, that isn't evangelistic. You often hear people refer to the verse as evangelistic. If only we could live in harmony, what a tremendous witness we would have before the Lord and uh, before the world and people would be converted. No, the, the statement there is not evangelistic. It is punitive. It is punitive. It is that the world might behold this unity in the Lord Jesus Christ and in seeing that would see this wonderful confirmation of who the Lord Jesus Christ is, the very Son of God. And will stand condemned, just as we saw earlier. As the Lord Jesus sends forth the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of what? Of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. It is not a conviction leading to salvation. It is a conviction leading to damnation. It, it, it is punitive. And so too here, that this wonderful union that exists in the body of Christ would testify to the fact that Christ is who he claimed to be. And the world consequently would stand condemned. So that's its source, God. That's its object, the regenerate, those whom the Father has given to the Son. That is its nature, it is spiritual. And that is its purpose, to convict. And then the Lord Jesus adds a fourth and final request. Verses 24 through 26. Father, glorify them. Verse 24. Father, I desire. Desire, not in the sense of wish, but will. Father, not I wish, you know, a kind of hope. No, it's Father, I will, I desire, I will, that they also, whom you have given me. Notice the twofold request here in verse 24. One, may be with me where I am. Two, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me. Before the foundation of the world. Father, glorify them. Yes, I want you to keep them in the world. Yes, I want you to sanctify them as they struggle, as they struggle between being not of the world and yet sent into the world. Yes, I want you to unite them as you and I are one. And I want you to finally glorify them. May they one day be where I am. 
And may they experience what the theologians call that beatific vision. May they see my glory, that glory for which he prayed in the first five verses. May they see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Oh, it will be a liberating sight. We read in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. From which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. It will be a satisfying sight. Psalm 17, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. It will be a transforming sight. 1 John 3, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And it will be an everlasting sight. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. William Hendrickson pens, the sun desires that all believers shall gaze forever on him. That is, on the radiance of his divine attributes as they are reflected in his exalted human nature. And in the transformed character, the inexpressible joy, the unquenchable love and the perfect peace of all those who enter into the rest that remains for the people of God. That is Christ's high priestly prayer. Now, what is Christ doing right now? He is praying that prayer. He prays that the Father would keep us. He prays that the Father would sanctify us. He prays that the Father would unite us. He prays that the Father would glorify us. And so let me ask you, does that give you the least bit of encouragement? I'll tell you, as I think and reflect on the devil's opposition, I'm extremely encouraged by the fact that the Father keeps me in response to the Son's prayer. When I think of my own sinfulness and proneness to sin, I am greatly encouraged by the fact that the Father sanctifies me in response to the Son's prayer. When I think of my own proneness to selfishness and an independent spirit, how grateful I am that the Father unites me with all the people of God in Christ in response to His Son's prayer. And when when I think of all that is set against me, when I think of all that opposes my spiritual journey and my hope of glory, Oh, I I am encouraged by the fact that the Father will glorify me in response to the Son's prayer. Are you encouraged? Are you encouraged by the fact that the Father glorifies the Son and the Son glorifies the Father? That Christ, by virtue of his glorification, has seized heaven as your right. You are now entitled to it. It is your God-given right in the Lord Jesus Christ. That he has entered heaven as our advocate. 
the one who makes eternal intercession on our behalf, that he has been exalted in glory as our prophet, one who teaches us, as our priest, one who has died for us and intercedes on our behalf, and as our king, one who reigns in our hearts. He does so in order to glorify the Father, and he does so according to that eternal decree whereby in the eternality of time, the Father chose for himself a people. The Son entered into covenant to redeem those people, lives forevermore to intercede on behalf of those people. As I bring you encouragement, whatever it is you're struggling and battling with, the Father is committed to glorifying the Son. And the Son is committed to glorifying the Father. Are you encouraged this morning by what the, Father, what the Son says about you? By what the Son thinks of you? As he speaks of his disciples back there in verse 8 and through to verse, verse 6 through to verse 10, he gives a, a manifold description of who they are and the one that has leapt out at the page and just captured my mind this week as I've been thinking and meditating upon it, is what he says there at the end of verse 6. This is a remarkable statement. He says in reference to the disciples, he says in reference to all those whom the Father has given him, they have kept your word. I don't know about you, I find that absurd. The disciples had kept his word? No, they hadn't. For terrible sinners. In just a matter of a couple hours, what are those disciples about to do? They're going to run scared. Peter is going to deny him. And yet the Lord Jesus, as he prays to his father, can refer to his disciples. He can refer to you this morning as someone who has kept his word. How? Well, that's the fruit of the wonderful doctrine of union with Christ, is it not? That as I stand as a believer in the Lord Jesus, as I stand before God this morning, I can say, bold-faced, I can say, I have kept God's Word. I cannot say that in the flesh, but I can say it in Christ. Because my union with Him is such that what Christ has done, God reckons it to me. That, that is outstanding. As I consider the day yesterday, as I consider the day before that, as I consider the struggles, as I consider the sins that I have committed, as I consider this propensity to sin so which I easily veer from the track, this great statement that the, Father, that the Son prays to the Father, prays on my behalf as one who has kept His Word. Does that encourage you this morning? Let me ask you thirdly in closing, are you encouraged by the fact that the Father answers the Son's prayers? Back in John chapter 11 at the resurrection of Lazarus, as the Son, as the Lord Jesus prays to the Father, He utters these words, I knew, I knew that you always hear me. 
This is not a prayer that goes unanswered. This is a prayer that is answered time and time again. The Father has glorified the Son. The Son is glorifying the Father. And the Father is keeping, is sanctifying, is uniting, is glorifying His people. Again, let me close and remind you of those words from the pen of Philip Melanchthon. There is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or in earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than this prayer offered up by the Son of God for us. Our Heavenly Father, grant us eyes to see and ears to hear. Grant us discernment into your word this morning that we might glean from it this fruit of comfort and encouragement as we consider our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We do pray, our Father, that you would impress these these truths upon us and help us to understand, remind us daily of of all that is ours in Christ. Help us to understand how your, your tender mercy is revealed in him and help us to understand that he is our hope our our rock, our fortress, our anchor. And may you cause us to keep the eyes of faith fixed on him. And our Father, we do pray for any unbelievers here this morning that you would would guard them against deriving any comfort from what has been said because there is nothing here for them. We pray that you would impress upon them their perilous state And the fact that they stand outside of Christ. And that they must subject themselves to the King, the Lord Jesus. And they must look to Him as the Savior of sinners. And so this we do pray in His own glorious and worthy name. Amen.